Good morning. It's good to be in this room again. It's totally different this time. Um, I preached at Cherokee, I believe, and Redeemer, and now Restoration Fellowship. It's really cool to be here with you guys. Sad to hear that Charles is under the weather, along with half of Memphis, it seems. We're the lucky few that are able to be here this morning, Um, but also honored to get the chance to preach here at Restoration Fellowship for the first time. I want to start off by saying I'm very encouraged by the humility, the faith, the courage it takes um, that's displayed in order to make a church merger work like you guys are doing here. Um, The former Redeemer Baptist was a huge encouragement to me as a church planter. And um, even though our own attempt at a merger was not successful, um, I'll tell you that story someday if you want to hear it. Even though that was not successful, this new thing that God is doing here is certainly worth celebrating, and I want to say certainly worth uh, fighting for as members of the three churches that have come together. You see, uh, through our church ending, sadly back in May, I actually come in this morning very hopeful about what God is doing in and through His church here in Memphis. Uh, My family and I have been to, get ready for this, 10 different churches in the area since mid-May. And surprisingly, uh, this did not seem like a chore to us or purgatory to us, although it did to our kids at times, I think. Uh, But for my wife, Brynn, and I, this trek across the city was very encouraging and a huge shot to our spirits as we've done this. Um, This season has been hard, um, and we've definitely been hurt and had some dreams shattered by the ending of our church. But Because of that, we've also gotten to see God at work in all of these imperfect but healthy, vibrant churches around the area. Uh, Places where you may know some people or may have even been a part of some of these churches. Uh, Churches like Renewal Church, Mercy Hill, Eastside Community, The Avenue, Grace Church in the Uptown area, Living Hope out in Collierville, Mosaic Church, Christ Community Church, Midtown Baptist, and of course, here with you guys uh, this morning. And this journey has been such a blessing to us as a much needed reminder that God is at work in every nook and cranny of this city, whether I'm on a church staff or not, and that thousands of others are coming together weekly across the area to pray, to worship, to be reminded of the gospel, to love each other, and to be sent back out into their neighborhoods with the hope of Jesus. So we're not in this alone is my message to you to start off with this morning. Now we must get better at working together across all these churches. As I'm going to these places and seeing so many churches trying to do the same things, preaching the same message, they all know each other, but there's not a lot of pulling together, Um, not a lot of real cooperation in the mission of bringing the hope of the gospel to our city. So I'm praying for that and working for that as well. But I just know this, that God is at work among his people in Memphis. And you can know that here this morning. So I hope that's an encouragement to you as we move into a new year. But now I want to give you the short uh, bummer portion of my sermon um, to start off with. It won't be long, I promise. But the church in America has issues. I don't know if you're aware of that. Including here in Memphis, the church has issues. And we can't keep our heads in the sand about what's happening. So Jim Davis 
and Michael Graham, two pastors from Orlando, have written a book called The Great Dechurching. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. And in it, they share the results of several years of research into America's exodus from the church. And they write this. They say, we're currently living in the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. Some 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church at least once per month now attend less than once per year. This shift is larger than the number of conversions during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the totality of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Davis and Graham also say that in the past 24 years in their city of Orlando, 42% of churchgoers have stopped attending church altogether. And another study predicts that 100,000 churches in the U.S. will close between now and 2025. Okay, we get it. We get it. Things are bad. None of us like hearing numbers like that. And you're probably thinking, what the heck are we supposed to do about it, right? We're one small church in one city. We can't stop the great dechurching. What are we supposed to do about it? But if we think about those numbers as people we know, family members, neighbors, friends that we haven't seen in church since before COVID, if we think about that, if we think about faces and people, then this becomes more real more urgent and more hopeful at the same time. Because then, all right, with actual faces attached to the numbers, there is something we can do. Now, there's some very thoughtful people who are not just being reactionary, but are trying to discern what is happening, why it's happening, and more importantly, what might the Lord be doing? Right? What is this great dechurching What does it mean for the church in America moving forward? And what might God be doing in the midst of this? Now, you can probably guess some of the reasons that people say they're leaving church and not coming back. I could ask for people to raise their hands and share, and you would share the list that I have. But division within the church over politics is a big one. Lack of love shown between those who disagree. Leaders abusing power or looking the other way when their own people are being abused. So all of these are factors in the amount of people leaving church behind, but it's not the number one factor. So this is one of the saddest things I've read recently. It also comes from Davis and Graham's research on de-churching. This is my last long quote I'm going to read, but they say this, sadly, egregious malpractice in the American church includes abuse of all kinds, racism, misogyny, political syncretism, and clergy scandals, we must deal with these problems, but the majority of Americans aren't the church casualties of this type. Are you ready for the number one reason people stopped attending church? They moved. Roughly three quarters of the people who left the church did so casually for pedestrian reasons, including moving, the inconvenience of attending, kids' sports activities, or family changes like marriage, divorce, or having a new child. We in no way want to downplay the hurt and suffering of the 10 million who left as casualties. But numerically speaking, that group just isn't the lion's share of the de-churched. For an effective response, we must have an accurate picture of who's leaving and why. Most leave casually and often unintentionally. So let's let that last sentence sink in for a second. Most leave casually and often unintentionally. 
So what do we do with that? Makes me think of the quote from Elie Wiesel, the writer and Holocaust survivor who famously said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And I think scripture supports that. And this casual drifting away from the people of God reflects something like the indifference, the apathy, the coldness that Jesus diagnosed in the church at Laodicea. He called it what? Being lukewarm. In Revelation 3, 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the signs of this same lukewarm faith are everywhere, including often in my own heart. And I see signs of it in my own heart weekly. So the question is, what is at the center of all this? The division, the dechurching, the lukewarm faith. Well, I believe it can always be traced back to the same root disease. It's to losing sight of what should be of first importance. It can be traced back to losing sight of the gospel. And this has always been the tendency of the human heart. The Corinthian church had drifted from it. So this whole letter of 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians and the two other letters that Paul wrote to them that we don't have, all of this was written to urge the Corinthians to return to the main thing and to have their hearts reawakened to the beauty and glory of the good news of the grace that's available to them through Jesus. That's what Paul's trying to do here. Why? Because if we get a steady dose of that, a truly redeemed person cannot remain casual or unintentional about their relationship with Jesus. And with the gospel constantly in view, we just won't easily drift away from community with other redeemed people. It just, it won't happen. So I wanted to send us into 2024 looking at the gospel passage in the whole New Testament. Most believe this is the passage that sums up the essentials of the good news better than any other. Probably because it was part of one of the church's earliest creeds. This is something that the church, the earliest church, would recite when they came together. Now, in the previous few chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul focused on how to live as God's people, in loving one another, in using our spiritual gifts for the common good, in our sexuality, in how we do corporate worship. All of this is covered in this letter. And now, 15 chapters in, Paul sees it's time to return the Corinthians' attention to the source, the heartbeat, the engine, the motivation of the Christian life. And it's the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus to rescue his people. Paul does a hard stop here in chapter 15 to remind the Corinthian church of this. What Jesus did is what saves us, not what we do. And all that we do is in what? Grateful response to this salvation, not to earn it. And we need 1 Corinthians 15 today, just like they needed it 2,000 years ago, because the human heart hasn't changed in all these years. And so without gospel prompts like this one, we will still drift into performance mode, checking off items on the list of rules, and either feeling self-righteous when we're doing it right, or despair when we're doing it wrong. Or even worse, drifting into apathy because we're just tired of feeling bad about it. 
So think about it for a second. Do you see yourself anywhere in there this morning? Self-righteousness, despair, apathy. Is that where you might find yourself this morning? If so, let's start a new year with a double shot of the gospel in the next few minutes and let it reawaken our hearts to the beauty of Jesus and our great need for his grace and mercy this morning. So we're going to keep it simple. No need to complicate this one, just two points. What is the gospel and what does the gospel do? What better way to start off a new year than that? So number one, what is the gospel? First of all, verses one and two of our passage, it's a word. It's a word. It's a message of good news. Gospel or euangelion in Greek means good news. So it's a message, a word to be preached. Verse two, as Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Verse three, as he delivered it to them. A gospel was something to be proclaimed. At the time, it was a common term used to announce something, like when a new emperor took the throne or an enemy was defeated. So by nature, it was a word to be shared, shouted, and proclaimed. Why? Because it's good news. And why is it so good? Because next, it's a word that can be freely received. So it's a word to be preached, it's a word that can be freely received, just as the Corinthians did in verse one. It's there to be accepted, no strings attached, because it's a message of grace. You know, one of my favorite proclamations of good news is from a surprising place back in Isaiah 55, which was proclaimed by God through the prophet Isaiah around 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 55, one through three, the Lord says to his people, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money or nothing to offer, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, the Lord says. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. And so that everlasting covenant of grace, that faithful love promised to David, that blessing for the whole world that would come through David's line, that is this gospel message. So it's a word to be preached. It's a word that can be freely received. And next, it's a word about what? Verses three through seven. The gospel is a word about the coming of the promised Messiah. He's called Christ here, which is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, and it means the promised one. The one that the Old Testament prophets promised would come to save God's people. And that's why Paul says, in accordance with Scripture, in verses three and four, in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament told us what God would do, and now he's done it. The Old Testament told us, and God has done it now. He sent his son to live for our righteousness, a perfect, righteous life lived for us in our place. Why? Because we couldn't do it. So all that stuff in the last few chapters of 1 Corinthians, there's no chance of us doing it all perfectly. No chance. But what do we do? A holy life is the standard. It's the requirement because God is perfectly holy. 
Now, this passage doesn't mention his life, but it's understood, right? Jesus had to live in order to die. And what kind of life did he have to live? A perfect, spotless, sinless life in order for his death to accomplish our salvation. So Christ died for our sins, again in our place, was buried and was raised on the third day in order to defeat hell, sin, the devil, and death for us forever. Okay, take a breath. All right, those are some lofty claims, people. We're claiming that this one man's life and death accomplished a lot. So are we really banking all of this on the story of Jesus? Yes. Yes, we are. But only why? Because the gospel is next. It's a word about something that actually happened in history. It's something that actually happened in history. It's not a nice moral tale. It's not a parable. It's not a good motivational story. The gospel is not tips for living your best life now. Or as Tim Keller says, it's not good advice. It's what? Good news. Okay, I might step on some toes. The gospel is not even WWJD. All right, if you used to wear those, you might have one on today. It's not a bad thing. But the message sometimes with that is live like Jesus lived and have a happy life. No, because first of all, as we said, Jesus lived a perfect life. Uh Uh-oh. And secondly, things didn't end so happily for him either, did they? Uh Uh-oh again. No, our only hope is that this is a historical word, a verifiable word about something that was done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. So Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus resurrected, right? 500 people. And then he calls them, three of them by name, Cephas or Peter, James and Paul himself. And think about this. All right, this was written between 40 and 50 years after these events happened. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying some of these people are still alive. If you don't believe it, go ask him about it. He wouldn't be saying this stuff. He wouldn't be pointing this out if it didn't really happen. And these people could have gone to folks that were there and said, yeah, I saw him. Don't miss the importance of this. In a time where people increasingly live in a virtual world, right? We believe in a real flesh and blood person who did something for us in history. God came from outside of time, outside of history. He broke into our world in a body like ours and rescued us from sin, death, and hell. And as Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, right, if... Our hope is only for this life. Okay, if Jesus wasn't actually physically raised from the dead, then we're suckers. As Christians, we've been duped. Why? Because we've based our lives today and our eternal lives on a lie. We've bet it all on a liar and a trickster who was followed by other liars and tricksters. So it's important very important that Jesus was a flesh and blood person and that he actually still is because he was raised in a new physical body, not as a ghost, not as a hologram. He was raised as a real physical person. I mean, think about this. The resurrected Jesus ate fish with his disciples. 
Then he encouraged Thomas, it touched my wounds, touched the side. You can feel me. I'm real. And then he ascended to heaven in that same eternal physical body that will never wear out. And how cool is this? We are promised to get a similar model. We will get our own new eternal physical bodies when Jesus returns on the last day. Right? And we can know this word about our future will actually happen because we know what Jesus did in the past also actually happened in a real time, in a real place where 500 people witnessed it. And then lastly, what is the gospel? Right, after all that we've just talked about, it's obvious. The gospel is the most important word. You know, when Paul visited Corinth, he told them in person about Jesus and about how to follow him. Later, he also wrote them a lot about Jesus in several letters. But in all those words delivered to the Corinthian church, this was of first importance. It was all essential. Everything he said was essential. Heck, it made it into the Bible, so it's all essential. But what Paul shares here, the second half of verse 3 through verse 8, 89 words in English, 61 words in Greek, this is of first importance. And what is it? It's the simple story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and appearing. So why is that of first importance? Well, I remember back to my student ministry days. I was a student pastor for 15 years. And one summer, the theme of our camp was the gospel. And one of my interns came up to me pretty upset when she found that out. And she was like, why are we covering the gospel all week? They already know that. You're like, shouldn't we move on to some deeper stuff? And to be honest, I used to think that way as well. You know, that the gospel was a message to get saved by, and then you move on to the deeper stuff about how to live. But thankfully, people like late author and pastor Tim Keller helped me see how wrong my thinking was by writing stuff like this. He said, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It's inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. Honestly, that's how I, I thought for much of my Christian life. It's more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom centers on the person and work of Jesus. So you never move on from the gospel. It is the deep stuff. It's a subject that you never get to the bottom of. It's why Paul says here, 15 chapters into 1 Corinthians, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. You know, back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds them of the one-note message he shared when he was actually with them in Corinth. I mean, they must have thought he was like a broken record. Because look at these verses. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
So when he was with them and in his letters, the gospel always stayed at the center. Why? Because of what the gospel does. Because of the power that's contained in it. So let's look at that. What does it do? To finish up this morning, what does it do? First of all, the gospel creates a new family. I knew this was going to happen. I'm getting super hot. I'm going to take this off. As I was walking up, I was like, you should take this coat off. But there we go. All right. First, the gospel creates a new family. A new family. It has the power to make one people out of two or more diverse groups of people. You guys obviously believe that here. Notice how Paul addresses the Corinthian Christians in verse 1 as what? Brothers. The church in Corinth was made up of both Jews and Gentiles in this huge, corrupt Roman city. Corinth was a strategic commercial center, a worldly wealthy city that had visitors and settlers coming in all the time from all over the known world. So there was much diversity, ethnic, religious, socioeconomic, and that created much opportunity for what? Conflict, friction, people rubbing each other the wrong way. But out of that melting pot, came something new, something different, a church. A group of people who followed this dead religious leader named Jesus, and they strangely called each other brothers and sisters. They were a new kind of family, a different kind of community that in some ways loved each other better than family. And this was shocking to outside observers that Jew and Gentile were together in this church, sharing meals together, sharing everything they had with each other. This just did not happen before. So that's one thing the gospel does. It makes one people out of two. It breaks down dividing walls. Only the gospel does that. Look how Paul starts the letter in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. It says it's from Paul and our brother Sosthenes. Again, brother. Writing 2, verses 2 and 3. The church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has created one family in the church. We are all saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is, verse 2, get this, both their Lord and ours. Do you see it? Do you see it? The gospel ends the us versus them. He is both their Lord and ours. Now, do you think that applies to Republicans and Democrats or black and white, and if applied to Jew and Gentile, if it worked for them, could it work for us? How about American and Afghan, or Chinese or Russian? You know, in my past roles as youth pastor and mission pastor, thankfully I had the blessing of worshiping with brothers and sisters in lots of different places, in Kenya, Tunisia, Germany, Nicaragua, and several other countries over the years. One thing I was always struck by was the genuine connection that I felt with believers, no matter where I was. 
There's something sweet about it that even overcomes the language barrier. So how is this possible? Well, it's because Christians all over the world have the same Holy Spirit and the same simple belief that Jesus saves. And that's the second thing the gospel does. It saves. Okay? It creates a new family and it saves. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So by the gospel, we have been saved, we are currently standing in salvation, and we are continually being saved. Now, if you ask an American in, say, 1960, I don't know how many of y'all were alive then, but if you ask an American back then, are you saved, they would likely have answered yes or no, or of course, I'm an American. That would have been some of the responses. But today, what response would you most likely get? Saved from what? Most people today don't have a category for things like sin and salvation. But the reality is we all need to be saved from the present effects of sin and the future payment due for those sins. Why? Because we are all born with hearts in rebellion against God. So we naturally resist his rule over our lives. Everybody does. Our sin separates. It keeps us from God both now and eternally. Death is coming and hell is real. Right Now, these realities are certainly not popular these days. But if we believe the Bible, this is the reality of our situation and for everyone we meet. So then, how can we be saved? Well, if you are the Lord's, then at some point, someone shared the gospel message with you. And you freely received it, believing it and trusting in Jesus. And now today, in this moment, you stand in that grace and you're secure in the gift of that salvation here this morning. Where you stand with God today in this very moment does not depend on how good you can be or even how much faith you can muster up. You know, I'm going to date myself here, but I am getting old. So um, I love the old Cayman's Call song. Anybody 90s, early 2000s Christian music fans out there? Um, Cayman's Call had a song called Shifting Sand. And the chorus of this song has always stuck with me. It says, my faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I stand on grace. So can you see that picture? We stand not on our faith, which can ebb and flow depending on our circumstances. No, we stand on the rock of God's grace on his unmerited favor toward us. That's what we stand on because it never fails. We rest in and depend on his love offered without cost to us. But of course it cost Jesus everything. It cost Jesus everything and he gave everything, carrying his cross up that hill. All for Hebrews 12 too, the joy that was set before him. And that joy that kept moving him toward the cross included the vision of us approaching God's throne of grace confidently. 
knowing that because of Jesus, we actually belong in God's presence. Can you believe that? Can you believe that here this morning? I want to quote another current, more current song uh, by Jess Ray, where she says, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. There's things about it that we can't grasp. Some of it's too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. So the gospel has saved us and is currently saving us. Verse 2 says, by it we are being saved if we hold fast to the gospel. The Greek here means that we are continually being saved tomorrow and the next day and the next day. How is that happening? Well, it's because Jesus came back to life, ascended to sit at the God the Father's right hand. And what's he doing now? He's sustaining our faith through the Holy Spirit right now in this moment. Now, Paul says this past, present, and future salvation is a reality for us if we hold fast to the gospel. So does that mean remaining in salvation depends on us? No, that's not what Paul means. Let's look at this idea of holding fast. I'm going to think of a big ship, like the girls, my two daughters, I've let them watch Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. The rest of them are junk. The first one's great. And um, so think about a big ship from Pirates of the Caribbean, the three huge sails, and see the ship being beaten by a storm. It's being beaten by a storm. Waves are coming over the deck. The boat's rocking. It might tip over. Some of the sailors have already been washed off into the water. So what should you do if you're on that ship? Hold fast to the mast. Find the strongest, sturdiest mast. Hold tight to it. Grab some rope if you need to and tie yourself to it. And you will survive the storm. Right? The gospel is our mast. In the midst of life's storms, we must hold fast to it, tie ourselves to it, because the mercy and grace of God is our only hope. Jesus is our life. So as Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix our eyes on him through the word, through prayer and community, through worship and communion. Don't take your eyes off of him because only Jesus saves. So the gospel creates a new family. It saves and lastly, it changes people. Like it completely changed Paul from Saul, the persecutor of the church, to someone who called these same people he was trying to kill brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus wanted a relationship with Paul so bad, right, that he came back down, right? He had already ascended. He came back down to meet him on the road and to show him grace and to invite him into his mission. What does he say? He says, yes, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle, but the grace of, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He had a healthy view of himself, right? We're all unworthy of grace, just like he was. But as the song says, I am who you say I am. This is so important to get. Look at the rest of verse 10 and verse 11. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So in the church, 
especially in more reformed circles, people can get a little nervous when talking about working for God. And I get it. We want to make sure that we're not slipping into works-based salvation. But Paul's pretty clear here. He says, I worked hard. In fact, I outworked all the other apostles. And he's not bragging. Well, maybe a little bit. He was human. But what do we do with that? How do we reconcile hard work and grace, good works and good news? How do they fit together in our lives? Most importantly, we need to see our good works as a response to good news. What we do for God is only possible because of what God has already done for us. What we do is not earning God's love. What we do is an appropriate response to God's love that is freely offered to us. So illustration I've used a lot over the years is, say Jeremy's walking down the street, bebopping along like he does, and on uh, the third floor of an apartment building, he sees that there's a fire, and he sees me. My head's stuck out the window calling for help. So what does he do? Of course, being the hero he is, he busts through the door, runs up the stairs, fights through the smoke, grabs me, throws me over his shoulder, carries me down through the smoke and flames, right? Busts out through the front door. All the neighbors are out there. They're cheering, applauding. Jeremy sets me down, and I, we're, you know, we're catching our breath, we're coughing, <coughs> and I say, thanks, dude. Appreciate it, and give him a fist bump and walk off. Now, is that an appropriate response to what Jeremy just did for me? Of course not. I mean, I should offer him a hug at least, some Gus's chicken, some Gibson's maybe, a kidney if he needs one, something. Okay? I can never repay him for that. But a fist bump is not a fitting response to what he's done for me. And this is what Paul is saying here. He can never earn or pay back what Jesus had done for him, but his life must be an appropriate response to the grace that he's received. So he will work as hard as he can to follow and serve Jesus, to lead others to him. He will, as he says in Romans 12, offer his body, his whole life, all that he has, all that he is as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You know, but as some of your dads might say, are you working hard or hardly working? My dad's used that one a lot. Because we work hard, right, we do all we can, but it's not really us that is accomplishing anything of eternal value, right? Verse 10 says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's the power of God at work in and through us. We're loving and serving and sharing with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So to wrap it up, I have no idea if I've gone long or not, but to wrap it up, looking back on Paul's call to this church in Corinth, in the rest of 1 Corinthians, he challenges them and us right, to worship wholeheartedly, to keep unity in the church, be different from the world around us, to walk in wisdom, to be faithful in marriage and singleness, to use all of our gifts for the good of the church, to proclaim good news, to be led by God's spirit, to give our very lives for the advance of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus' name. Now, why would we do all that? It's not enough just to hear that we should do it. Why would we do all that? Well, how could we respond to such amazing grace in any other way, right? Giving all of ourselves is the only appropriate response. So to close, as the church in America today, in Memphis specifically, Think about this. Why are we fearful? 
Why are we fearful? How could we be without hope? And there's a lot of things to make us hopeless in Memphis right now. How could we be without hope? How could we be inactive or not on mission, not in continual prayer for God to bring renewal and revival and peace? How could we just drift away from the church? How could we be casual or unintentional about our faith, about God's people, about God's call in our lives? How could we be divided and bickering over politics or any other secondary thing? If most or even some of that is true of us, then we must not be doing what Paul models in 1 Corinthians 15. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be reminding each other of the gospel. That's what we're here for. Again, Keller defines the gospel like this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's our gospel. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that often. Please give me some of that every time you see me. That's why I love friends like Jeremy. They, they do that. You can give that along with the hug. I am a hugger. But this is really our primary role in each other's lives, reminding each other of our great need for grace and the great links that God went to provide it for us and to be reminded of the great power and presence because of God's spirit, that his power and presence is available to us today in Jesus. People are drowning in sin here this morning. I know that. Others are drowning in hopelessness, grief, depression, pain. In this gathering, that is true of somebody. And what do we need? Yes, we need each other. Back in May of this year, the Surgeon General declared loneliness a new public health epidemic in the U.S. So isolation is a real issue. It causes all sorts of problems, physical, emotional, psychological. And so, yes, we do have community and relationships to offer, and we should do that as the church. But the church provides more than a buddy system for the world. It's more than a social club. The church is more than group therapy. We must know that this is a place to encounter the power of God. So back in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross to those who are perishing is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. So Paul went up against some of the greatest philosophers and debaters and orators in the Roman Empire in cities like Corinth and Rome. And because of that, he was now convinced that there was just no contest between worldly wisdom and the gospel. There was no contest. Why? Because in the gospel message is the very power of God. It's the power to save. And he had seen the simple gospel message change hearts and lives time and time again bringing hope, joy, and peace to people like nothing else could. And he had seen this happen over 30, 40 years. So Paul was convinced that it was important to get everything out of the way that might obscure the good news, everything, so that the cross of Christ wouldn't be emptied of one ounce of its power. So what about us? Let's close this morning thinking about one question. 
In what ways might we be emptying the cross of its power in how we interact with each other and the world? As chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians says, we are here as God's people to build up, encourage, and comfort one another. But how do we do that? Well, it must include giving each other the gospel, the thing of first importance, the inexhaustible source of hope, no matter what any of us are up against this morning. So how are we robbing each other of that? Well, I think it's simple. It's by not talking about Jesus. We rob each other of that by not talking about Jesus. Last thing I'll say is I've been through a real valley in the last few months, watching my dream of a new church in Memphis fail. And I've been very grateful for those who have given me the gospel in the midst of this. Yes, the hugs, the texts, the calls, the advice, It's all been sweet. All of that is God's grace for sure. But those who explicitly pointed me to Jesus have been the greatest encouragement and comfort. For example, you know, we all have a tendency to forget where our righteousness comes from, right? We have a tendency to forget what makes us acceptable in the eyes of God. And we can all drift into thinking that our performance is what does that, whether it be in our work in our parenting, in our church activities, whatever it is, we think it's, it's performance. I don't know if you're aware, but pastors struggle with this too. Your pastors struggle with this. So on several occasions the last few months, friends have looked me in the eye and said something along these lines. God does not think you're a failure. He's not disappointed in you. And he sees Jesus when he looks at you, and so he is well pleased. Now, come on. That's good stuff, right? Who could drift away from a place where they're they're getting that week after week? But we are simply draining the power out of the cross when we fail to give each other that good news when we get together. I just need to be reminded as often as possible that my righteousness and my identity are found in Jesus and nowhere else. Not my personality, not my ability to help people or teach or counsel or plant a church. I need the gospel. Your pastors need the gospel. We all need it. So let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we're just thankful that you, hundreds of years before Jesus said, hey, I've got grace for you. You can't earn anything from me. I offer what I offer without cost. And then you prove that in Jesus, coming to us yourself, becoming one of us, humbling yourself to become one of us, and then to do the things that we could never do. And then dying for us. Dying for us because of the ways we've come up short. You did all of that because you love us. You want us to know your grace. And not accept it as a one-time thing, but live in it, soak in it, live out of it every day. God, help us to do that. Help the dear folks here in this church to do that this year. And to remember every time we gather, whether it be in 
my church, this church, churches throughout the city, that every time we gather, what do we need? We need the gospel. We need the reminder that we need grace and that grace is available to us in Jesus. In his name we pray.